Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. If you lived in America in the mid-19th century, you might think it extraordinarily outlandish for a cabinet maker and a maid to suddenly up and take a four-day journey over Christmas, travelling first class on trains, staying in luxurious hotels, and even dining at the captain's table on a steamboat. You may even wonder how it came to pass that a maid and a cabinet maker were even invited to dine with the steamboat captain in the first place. But what makes this story extraordinary is that the pair undertaking the journey were fugitives. Black fugitives. Escaped slaves, in fact. William and Ellen Craft met, fell in love and were married in Macron, Georgia. They had different masters and, even after marriage, were only permitted to visit one another in the evenings after work. But this wasn't their gravest concern. Both had been passed along from a previous master when they were quite young. William was sold to settle a debt, and Ellen had been given as a gift by her previous mistress to that mistress's daughter. William's parents, brother and sister had also been sold, and he had no idea of their whereabouts. An image forever burned into William's mind was that of his 14-year-old sister shaking with fear and tears streaming down her face as she was taken away just moments before William was sold himself. William had become the property of a bank cashier, but William had finished a cabinet-making apprenticeship and he was very good at it and so remained in the job with the new master skimming most of William's wages. Ellen's story is a little different. She had been gifted by her mistress to her mistress's daughter, but there was an ulterior motive behind this. Ellen was the illegitimate daughter of her mistress's husband. Known as a quadroon, a dated term now considered offensive, similar to the Australian term quartercast, she was frequently mistaken as one of the mistress's white children, with no doubt some family resemblance coming into play there also. This irked the mistress no end, and sending her away seemed like a viable solution. But despite it having disrupted her life in the past, Ellen having such a light complexion would give William an idea. The couple wanted children but were acutely aware of the precariousness of an enslaved family unit, constantly under threat of being torn apart at the whim of their master or mistress. Both of them wanted more than anything to escape to freedom. But how? William had been pondering this question and thought he might have a solution. Christmas was coming, and as they were both favoured by their master and mistress respectively, they shouldn't have any trouble obtaining a leave pass for a few days. Hopefully, they could complete their journey before the alarm was raised. William was permitted to keep a tiny percentage of his wage and had some money put by, but the two unaccompanied slaves couldn't simply travel wherever they pleased, and especially not to Philadelphia their intended destination. But what if Ellen posed as William's owner? Ellen was frequently mistaken for white, but there was another snag. A white woman travelling with a male slave would have drawn suspicion, so Ellen would need to pass herself off as a young man. The idea didn't sit well with her initially, but as the time drew near, she gradually warmed to it, and on the 21st of December 1848, they began their arduous journey. William cut Ellen's hair to collar length and she put on the attire of a young male planter, even adding an embellishment of her own and putting her right arm in a sling to avoid it being discovered that she was illiterate. 
Further to that, she came up with a refinement to the supposed injury by getting William to bandage part of her face, giving her a more masculine appearance, but more importantly, giving her justification to limit her conversations. They set out and immediately ran into trouble at the train station when William saw the owner of the cabinet-making shop he worked at and suspected the owner had seen him. The owner boarded the train and walked straight by Ellen without a hint of recognition and had almost reached the, quote, Negro car, as it was known, when the train began to move and he was forced to alight, scanning the windows like a hawk as the train rolled by. William had literally been saved by the bell, but Ellen was having problems in first class too. A friend of her master, who knew her quite well, was sitting in her car, as it should happen, right next to Ellen. At first she thought he was there to bring her back, but he showed no sign of recognition and Ellen, bandaged and looking like an invalid, avoided conversation by feigning deafness. In Savannah they boarded a paddle steamer where Ellen would be invited to dine with the captain, but almost gave the game away when she absent-mindedly thanked William and was given a serious dressing down for this behaviour by a military officer who overheard it. On the final leg of the journey, a particularly officious ticket seller refused to sign on behalf of Ellen, despite the sling around her arm. Abolitionists would sometimes assist slaves to free states, and the ticket seller had become suspicious. But as it should happen, the steamboat captain walked by and inserted himself into the standoff, vouching for Ellen and William. William and Ellen Craft arrived in Philadelphia on Christmas Day. They would go on to give public lectures about their escape and move to a free black area in Boston. But the ordeal wasn't quite over. After the signing of the Fugitive Slave Act, bounty hunters were sent to capture them, resulting in the couple moving to Hammersmith in England, where they would spend the next two decades and have five children together, only returning to the US after the Civil War. They would write a book called Running a Thousand Miles to Freedom and in 1890 would move to Charleston, South Carolina to live with their daughter. Sadly, in 1891, Ellen passed away. William would live for another nine years, passing away in 1900. A brave and resourceful couple working as yin to the other's yang to execute one of the most daring and extraordinary escapes from slavery ever documented. You may have gathered from the first story that the theme for this episode is escapes, and there's plenty of material to revisit the topic of escapes in the future, but this episode I'm focusing on escapes from slavery, specifically in 19th century North America. Our second tale of daring and successful bids for freedom takes place amid the cobblestone streets of the port city of Charleston in South Carolina, or more specifically, without giving the game away, on Charleston's beautiful harbour. On the 5th of April 1839, a baby boy was born into slavery in Beaufort, South Carolina, to one Lydia Polite, a servant in the household of Henry McKee. She would call him Robert, and due to his short stature, he would become known as Small Robert, a name which he would eventually switch around, calling himself Robert Smalls. At the age of 12, he was rented out by McKee as a labourer in Charleston. Smalls was allowed to keep a percentage of the money he made, but the rest, of course, 
went to McKee himself, but it gave Robert Smalls the opportunity to be out and about, and he would discover he had a love of the ocean, and would eventually find work on the docks, beginning as a stevedore, and then on board the boats themselves, gradually working his way up to wheelman, an alternative title to helmsman reserved for black people, who couldn't be helmsman, even though a wheelman performed the same duties and had the same responsibilities. At age 17, Robert Smalls married another slave by the name of Hannah Smith. She was five years his senior and already had two daughters, which Robert took on as his own, and in time, they had two children of their own, a son and a daughter. Sadly for the young family, the son would die in infancy. At the beginning of the American Civil War, Robert Smalls was pressed into service on the Confederate side. His immense knowledge of Charleston Harbour and his skill piloting boats saw him become the wheelman of a Confederate vessel called the CSS Planter, a steam-powered paddle wheeler being used largely to lay mines in the harbour and as a transport ship for troops. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how some people can grossly underestimate the resourcefulness and strength of character of those they have oppressed. You see, of an evening, it was customary for the officers to go ashore and leave Smalls and eight other slaves on board to guard the ship, completely unsupervised. The possibilities opened up by this routine were not lost on Smalls, he was keen to get himself and his family out of slavery and had been saving money to buy that freedom. He'd saved a considerable sum for the time, too. $100, but he needed $800, and that was going to take some time. But time wasn't on his side. His wife, Hannah, was having trouble with her master. He had become contentious with her, and Smalls feared he might sell her, which would mean he might never see her or the children again. And so it was that on the 12th of May, 1862, the planter docked at the wharf, as usual. But as its three white officers were preparing to disembark, Smalls made a request to the captain. Could the families of the crew come aboard for a visit that evening? This wasn't an unusual occurrence, and permission was granted on the proviso that they were off the ship before curfew. And so word was sent out, and the crew's families came aboard. And once aboard... Smalls told them of a little plan he had been working on. At curfew, they would leave, but then circle back and hide themselves at the North Atlantic Wharf, where he would collect them. Smalls, you see, intended to steal the planter and steam her into Union-controlled waters and freedom. In the early hours of May 13th, Smalls put on the captain's uniform and a favourite straw hat the captain wore, and the planter began its journey. As promised, he collected the families of the crew at the rendezvous point, then steamed out of the harbour. Smalls had studied the mannerisms of the planter's captain, one Charles C.J. Relier, and gave all the correct hand signals at the checkpoints, passing five Confederate-held forts without arousing suspicion. It was on the approach to the last fort, Fort Sumter, that the frayed nerves began to show. The women began to weep and pray, and several of the men urged Smalls to give Fort Sumter a wide berth. Smalls was having none of it. He knew any deviation from routine would draw suspicion, and so steamed past Sumter on the usual course at a leisurely pace, even standing on the deck in the captain's uniform and straw hat, impersonating him. 
When Fort Sumter challenged, he gave the correct hand signals again and steamed on by without incident. By the time anyone cottoned on to the fact they had been duped, the planter was out of range of the guns. A white flag was hoisted indicating surrender, and the planter headed straight toward the Union Navy ships that were blockading the harbour, almost being fired upon by the USS Onward, until a member of the crew using a pair of binoculars realised what was happening, and the guns were lowered. A witness account from the time states that as the boat came within earshot, quote, One of the coloured men stepped forward, and taking off his hat shouted, Good morning, sir. I've brought you some of the old United States guns, sir. That man was Robert Smalls. End quote. Robert Smalls continued to have a life of extraordinary achievement. He would serve in the Union Navy, eventually receiving a pension equivalent to a captain, though he wasn't to hold that rank. He would have an illustrious political career in the Republican Party, learn to read and write, start a school for African-American children, become a publisher, and went into business for himself. But I think the action that touched me the most during my research was when I discovered that he bought his former master's house in Beaufort after it was seized for refusal to pay taxes, and showing grace and humility allowed his former master's wife, Jane McKee, to move back into the house and live in the familiar surroundings of her former home prior to her passing. Robert Smalls passed away on the 23rd of February, 1915, of natural causes, aged 75, an extraordinary man who led an extraordinary life. Our final story today recounts the escape of one Henry Brown. As with William and Ellen Craft and Robert Smalls, Henry Brown, his wife Nancy and their three children lived with the constant threat of one or all of them being sold to a different slave master. Henry worked in a tobacco factory and had been paying off his wife's owner not to sell her. But when her owner wanted to extort more money from Henry and he was unable to come up with it, he betrayed him, and the now heavily pregnant Nancy and his children were sold to a different master. So Henry decided he had nothing to lose, and would make a bid for freedom. But Henry's plan, although no less daring, was considerably simpler than the other escapes spoken of on the Extraordinarium this episode. Henry, you see, planned to mail himself to freedom. Henry Brown was friends with a free black man he had met in the church choir named James Smith, who roped in a white man and abolitionist named Samuel Smith. A box was built three feet by two feet by two and a half feet. If you're used to speaking metric, trust me, for an average sized man, that's very small. It was fitted with three small air holes, and on the morning of March 29, 1849, Henry Brown somehow squeezed himself inside with some biscuits and a flask of water. The lid was nailed on, and Henry Brown was all set for, quote, getting myself conveyed as dry goods to a free state, end quote. But regardless of the this side up with care instruction written on the box, Henry spent the first leg of the journey being bounced and jarred in a stagecoach completely upside down. He was loaded sideways onto a train and then upside down again for a journey by steamboat. The pressure from the blood flowing to his head for such a prolonged period was almost unbearable. Quote, 
I felt my eyes swelling as though they would burst from their sockets, and the veins on my temples were dreadfully distended with the pressure of blood upon my head. I felt a cold sweat coming over me that seemed to be warning that death was about to terminate my earthly miseries. End quote. Fortunately for Henry, a couple of weary travellers put the box upright again so they could use it as a bench to sit on. When the steamer reached Washington, Brown again endured a bumpy journey by wagon, and the box he was in was carelessly thrown to the ground, knocking him, quote, insensible. But finally, after a very uncomfortable 27-hour journey, Henry Brown arrived in Philadelphia. The abolitionists who the box was addressed to opened the lid, and Henry Brown popped out singing. And why not? Henry would be nicknamed Box after this ordeal, and forevermore call himself Henry Box Brown. He would go on to become an entertainer who openly mocked the racist ideology of the era. He would move to Great Britain to escape the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and would meet his second wife, Jane Floyd, and with her, he had another family. A fact often swept under the rug is that the master of his first family, upon hearing of his escape, offered to sell his family back to him. For reasons unknown, Henry declined the offer. Henry Box Brown passed away in Toronto on June 15, 1897, estimated to be 82 years old. You've been listening to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care, catch ya.